Welcome to Sound More, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Lou. And I'm David McDonald. Today we hear from Dr. Beverly Stolci, Professor Emerita of Folklore and Anthropology here at Indiana University. Dr. Stolci began her graduate career in the 1970s, an academic interest of that decade in anthropological critique and ritual and celebration influenced her focus on ritual work and women and gender issues. I speak with Dr. Stolci about her experience as a woman in the academy, the obstacles she encountered along the way, and the changes in circumstances for women in academia today. Hello, I'm here with Dr. Beverly Stolci, Indiana University Professor Emerita of both folklore and anthropology. I asked you here today so we could talk about kind of your personal career and also the career of women in academia in general. I admit some personal interest because I first found you when I was looking at festivals and so I've read some of your work and just wanted to talk with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know you've branched out into research kind of more than festivals, but on gender and performance since then. Could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what you've done since then or your career? What I've done in the sort of latter half of my career? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, as you said, uh, I uh, have always been interested in gender and uh and women's roles uh, in society. I grew up uh, in a small uh, West Texas area. My family were ranchers, and so uh, I had a horse, and I worked on the ranch with my father, and I did a lot of other things. I was very active um, in uh, in school uh, and, and so on. And so the first part of my career and the first part of my work I did my dissertation on rodeo as a ritual and festival, and I actually went to a a rodeo that lasts for four days. It really is a huge festival of cowboy people. And I knew that because I had attended it numerous times. One of my cousins participated and won a saddle there, and I participated in in smaller rodeos. I never did go to that one, but I did uh, barrel race in smaller ones. So... Uh, I did the first part of my career uh, as rit- the study of ritual and festival in rodeo and, and in other ritual and festivals actually all over the world. Whenever I went somewhere else, I looked at festivals like in Turkey one summer. I went uh, was a, I was teaching in Turkey one summer at Boazici University, and then I went uh, to a Nasruddin Hoja festival. So I did that. I concentrated on that. Uh, but because I uh, included gender as a very prominent topic in everything I was doing, not only rodeo, but uh, in uh, sort of the American West. The first article I ever published was on, it was called The Helpmate, uh, Helpmate for Man Indeed. And this was on women on the frontier. So, um, but it was really on published um, uh, stereotypes of women on the frontier. <clears throat> But I actually had always maintained the position that I wanted to work in my own culture, but then I wanted to work in in a a different culture. But I felt an obligation to first work in my own culture, get some experience, demonstrate that I can look at my own culture as an object of study. And that proved to be a very good idea for me because when I then decided to go work in Ghana with Queen Mothers, 
I met a very important chief, a very well-educated chief. He had a degree in engineering. And the first time I went to see him, he took charge of the interview and interviewed me. And his first question was, have you ever done any work in your own culture? So I was able to say, well, yes, uh, that's my dissertation topic. I did. And so then he said, well, do you have any reprints? So I said, well, actually, I do. <laughs> so I gave him the reprints. The next time I saw him was at an enormous, uh, huge funeral, which is this is a ritual festival kind of event in Ghana. They are very, very important. And this was especially huge because he is very important. I mean, we're talking thousands of people come and go over four days. Wow. And so here were all these people, all this drumming, all this color movement and so on. And so I went up to greet him and he motioned me forward and said, I've read your reprints and it's okay, I'll work with you. So, so that's where then you ask me uh, about the second part. I went to Ghana to study queen mothers. They are the female counterpart to chiefs. Every chief has a queen mother. Every queen mother has a chief, and they must come from the same family. They are not married to each other. So queen mothers have not had very much attention uh, because, of course, you know, the colonials came along and totally ignored them. So they kind of had been left aside all these years. They are now coming back. But when I went, they... Um, still did not get very much attention, but nevertheless, they had held on. They were not going to quit just because nobody paid attention. So I began that, and then I expanded it to what's often called legal anthropology or uh, folk law, and I spent much, much of my time in uh, courts. The Queen Mothers uh, do dispute resolution, the major queen mother, the Asante Hema, has a regular court every week. Um, all of these Asante people do lots and lots of litigation with each other and other people of all kinds. They really do a lot. It's very deep in their culture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's uh, what I have concentrated on in uh, since has been the queen mothers, the chiefs, uh, the disputes. I'm still writing right now. I'm right in the midst of writing about a dispute that lasted for 20 years and involved a queen mother and a chief. So that's a elaborate answer to your question. I don't think it's elaborate. I think you've done a lot and that <laughs> requires such an answer. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious. Had you worked with gender prior to looking working with the Queen Mothers? Yes. Uh, right. Uh, it, it wasn't just the subject of my dissertation. The subject of the dissertation was the rodeo as a ritual and festival. But I included this portion on women because my particular way of looking at gender is that I'm interested in women's position within society. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested in how women... Uh, assert themselves, uh, have some power, are able, or some authority in a more or less traditional society, whatever we want to call it, but uh, roles that have been established. So as I mentioned before, the first article I ever published was called A Helpmate for Man Indeed, and this, these were about stereotypes of women on the frontier. And uh, the reason, by the way, for my having written it, um, 
women in folklore really got started at the University of Texas, where I was a graduate student. And uh, so we were all talking about women and the women's movement. And it was kind of, uh, this was in the early 70s. And so it was kind of the height of the feminist movement. And, um, but I, having grown up in sort of cattle culture, cowboy culture, West Texas ranching culture, and so on, I knew that women can be very strong there. Men can be, you know, just as misogynistic as men anywhere, and they can be very open about it. But women can also be very tough. Um, and women can be ranchers themselves, and women ride horses, and so on. And I knew that. So I wanted to write about that. So the real reason I started to write that article was a, a story that uh, my father had always told uh, about my mother. Uh, but my father was a big storyteller, actually. And so that simply led me into this larger issue. But part of the reason for mentioning this is simply to say that I think probably the best uh, scholars, uh, certainly in the field uh, of folklore and so on, are people who start with something that has some meaning for you as a person. You don't just pick a topic out of the air, but you choose something from your own experience or something that you've been interested in for a long time. You have more than just uh, a random interest in it. You have a personal interest in it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I looked at women on the frontier, and I wrote uh, somewhat about women in um, women in rodeo. Uh, so I I always have had that uh, interest, and then then I shifted it to look at queen mothers because they have a position of authority in the traditional society. That makes sense. That also gives me a little more vocabulary to ask the question I think I was aiming for, which was okay. You looked at women's position in society. So how do you view or how have you seen women's position in academic society throughout mm -hmm. even the seventies and it's mm -hmm. 2021 now? Yes. Right. Well, it has, it has both changed uh, and not changed. Um, certainly uh, there were very, very few women uh, in academe for a very, very long time uh, by the, 60s and 70s, I think uh, that began to change. One of the things that we do not always recognize, some people have, but uh, we do not always recognize it, is that prior to that time, sometimes there would be one woman. So there would be one woman uh, on a faculty of 50 men. And there would be one woman politician uh, among a group of 150 men uh, and so on. And that kind of set a pattern. And oftentimes women really had to compromise. They couldn't necessarily bond with other women. They had to bond with some men and so on. And that uh, is a pattern that I think uh, sometimes has continuity. That is, a woman even today or, or certainly in the last uh, 20th century a woman who has what she thinks is a position of power may not want to share that uh, with some other woman. And so that's that's one of the things I think that has changed uh, dramatically, of course, because now there are uh, women in academe. In most fields, there are some or in some there are a lot. And uh, statistics have kind of shown, I think, that more women than men are going into academe now. So there really is a dramatic change in numbers. But that doesn't mean that men do not think that it, they still own it. And so, <laughs> so I feel that women have to learn um, 
uh, about all the traps uh, that are kind of along the way. And sometimes uh, you can learn from uh, some other woman. It's a really good thing if you have a mentor. And I think this is uh, the, the recognition of the importance of mentors, I think, has now been recognized, and it's actually institutionalized. There was a time, for example, at IU uh, in the uh, uh, 80s and 90s and early 2000s when we had uh, a, a dean of women. And this was not an academic uh, deanship. This was the kind of center, like you have the African-American center and the Asian-American center and so on. And the, for the dean of women, it was for women to come to do whatever was needed to be done. So if you had a complaint about someone, you could take it to the dean of women and the dean of women might advise you how to handle it. But among the things they did was they would identify women who were willing to be mentors, women who already have tenure, and you're willing to be a mentor for a junior scholar who's coming along. And you would get to know that person and kind of try to advise that person uh, about their career. And I think studies have also been done. Uh, I know one friend of mine, uh, her name is Susan Phillips. She's a retired faculty at Arizona. But I know she did um, a paper. I don't know where it was published, but um, I know that she was working on that exact, looking at that exact problem that mentorship makes a huge difference. So every young woman should find a mentor, preferably another woman. If she can't find one, she should find a male that she thinks she can trust. Uh, but everybody uh, really benefits from having a mentor for all kinds of uh, reasons. So that, I think, uh, has changed. Unfortunately, the president of the university abolished uh, that office a number of years ago. And so we don't have that uh, anymore. But uh, now I think it is possible for women uh, to find, but sometimes you have to s seek it out. Sometimes departments will assign uh, someone as a mentor. It's, it's ideal also if you have a mentor in another department, because then you get another perspective and you get out of the politics of your department into somebody else's. So, so those are things that have changed. But as I said before, there are still men who feel that they have power. Uh, sexual harassment hasn't disappeared just because we can now talk about it. But uh, in AFS, uh, I went to a very exciting session at the last AFS meeting in Baltimore uh, where women were talking about, you know, uh, harassment. And I mean, it's still ongoing, I think, in the society, exactly what's the best way uh, to handle it. But at least having meetings and talking about it is, is really uh, very important. And I think there is a committee now. But overt sexual harassment is only one part. The other part of misogyny in institutions is to understand that academe generally works. Uh, it does not do most of its damage overtly. It works underhandedly and indirectly. And so males will do things, for example, for years, uh, men in you know any department, any university would very often prevent any woman from getting tenure. That maybe they'd say, okay, we have to hire a woman now. So we're told we have to hire a woman, we'll hire her, but you know, we'll see she never gets tenure. And, uh, and they would do that. 
But uh, men can, along the way, they can do a lot of other things. Men can uh, be in charge of a book or a journal where you think you're going to publish. And, and this did actually happen to me once. I wrote a critical letter to the Smithsonian because they never paid us for working. Uh, a lot of us students worked for the festival in the summer mm -hmm. and we didn't get paid. So finally, I wrote a letter. And my professors knew I was doing it. Nobody told me not to do it. So I did it. And the consequences were that the head of the Smithsonian at the time saw to it that I did not get in a publication that I had been invited to contribute to. So, uh, you know, I mean, that wasn't a, it didn't ruin my career. But, but there are women whose careers have been ruined, of course, because they were prevented from publishing or they were harassed or all these things. So these things uh, are certainly more diminished now than they used to be. But that doesn't mean that they're gone. So every woman should be sure she has a mentor. She should, you know, have women friends. But, you know, you should also know that sometimes there are women who may be competitive and, and may not be uh, going to be your friends. Or maybe they're your friends, but maybe you want to be a little bit guarded and you want to check it out so that you do have good friends. And when I was a student, we were very, very uh, good friends. We were a small group at the University of Texas. It was a new program. Many of us were the same age as our professors. So uh, we had a very, very close, uh, intimate group. It was very intellectually exciting. And I think we knew each other well enough to know kind of, you know, who you could trust or who you were comfortable with and, and so on. But in larger departments where you don't have quite the same opportunity to get to know so many people, um, it, it's, uh, you know, you need more caution and more time to kind of sort out uh, those kinds of relationships. Larger departments also have more intricate yes. networks of politics. That's right. That's right. Maybe not more intricate, but definitely more players. They have more players, more complexity. And uh, well, one thing I haven't mentioned is that ideologies are very powerful in every department, in every field, in every university. So uh, I came from Texas. I had also taught at Texas after I finished my degree. I taught uh, in the English department uh, for a number of years before Dick and I came here. And it was a very inter interdisciplinary uh, faculty. People knew each other, you know, all across fields, partially because we weren't just limited to what one thinks of as folklore, but we were interested in, for example, narrative. Well, lots of other people are interested in narrative too. Ritual and festival. You know, I used to teach a course in the English department at Texas on ritual and festival because they didn't know much about the literature on that. But of course, ritual and festival is a very big part. Uh, of literature. So I used to teach a ritual and festival course in which we concentrated on King Lear. And uh, so, you know, it was, um, it was a very intellectually exciting and interdisciplinary uh, community there. People were very open to ideas and so on. When we came here, we found it was really very different. Uh, there's not, as far as I know, still is not nearly as much kind of cross-disciplinary interaction. Uh, sometimes uh, people would try. We had, uh, I, I led along with a colleague in another department, a, a seminar on performance, which did have people in different departments. So it, it, it is possible, you know, that, and of course, through all the area studies programs like African studies, Asian studies, et cetera, you do meet uh, colleagues, uh, um, but 
uh, there, I never found that it was uh, as easy. And I don't think it was just me. I think institutionally, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to uh, happen uh, as much. And then, you know, every department uh, has its ideology uh, as well. And one of the ideologies that is common on this campus is that many people in departments think that we are the best, the best department or the best uh, area studies program and so on. We are simply the best in the country. And so therefore, don't talk to me about X, you know, don't don't try to persuade me to change anything, etc. And um, so I actually found that extraordinarily difficult uh, <laughs> to, uh, to live with. Where, wherever it cropped up, I discovered it cropped up a lot on this campus. So there are these ideologies and, you know, you have to kind of make up your mind. So my, uh, my advice uh, to, to women, it kind of in response to a lot of your questions is that every individual needs to kind of think about finding your own space, which is your space, no matter what department or what university or whatever you're in, you need uh, to have something that you know is your space. Other people may or may not know that that's your space. It's not like you're claiming nobody else can do that because there are always other people doing whatever you're doing. So you just need to know that that is your space. You are competent in it and you have found mentors and supporters among faculty and friends very carefully. You've done it carefully, but you have some confidence in what you're doing. You, you have knowledge uh, of what you're doing. You're, you're not just marching out into the unknown and claiming that you're going to be an authority on this subject, but you have worked with it and thought about it and, and feel and gotten approval for it and so on, so that uh, you feel that you have a fair degree of confidence uh, about uh, what that is. And then, you know, you can you can build on that. You don't have to stay with one topic. Of course, you can uh, add on other topics, but you build on uh, what you have, but you know what your um, space is so that, uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that somebody else doesn't define it for you. You're, you're, somebody might persuade you Maybe so. I'm sure I've persuaded some people to change their dissertation topics and so on. It's not that you don't listen to advice, but you feel that you uh, if, and if something fails, if you if you get back a paper and your professor has said, well, you know, I'm really disappointed in your work here. You want to find out why. And if you respect that person's opinion, then maybe you want to make some changes. Maybe you say, gee, how could I have thought that? Uh, because, you know, these things come out when we write. We discover things that maybe we didn't know about ourselves. And so you're always critical of yourself uh, as well as of other people. But this idea of, you know, sort of thinking of yourself as a space, not thinking of yourself as, you know, I'm right, I'm good, I'm going to be the next star, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this or that, but rather thinking of yourself as having a space, and within that space, this is kind of who you are. You're always cultivating it. It's not, it's not a static thing. You're always building on it. Yeah. I can, I like the always cultivating. <laughs> every semester, I realize how, there's a new list of things I did not know that I did not know. Yes. <laughs> um, and I can, I mean, with your switch from rodeo to queen mothers, that's a very new list. Of, <laughs> okay, these connect, uh -huh. but not exactly. 
<laughs> so you mentioned that women in folklore kind of began at Texas while you were there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, Can you speak a bit more to that? And maybe along the lines, weaving in your own experience as a graduate student. Uh-huh. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this was the early 70s. The program there really officially started in 1971. And so I was actually in the first full class. And so this was a moment in time where by this time, you know, Betty Friedan had published her book and um, Shulamith Firestone and, you know, all kinds of the kind of classic uh, works of feminism were coming out and uh, work in, uh, by women scholars was also uh, beginning uh, to appear. So uh, it was also the case that uh, many of us, uh, this was a small class, but many of the graduate students in that first or the first several years of the classes tended to be people who had already been out. Uh, so I had been out of my bachelor's for 10 years I, uh, when I uh, finished my bachelor's, I, I actually really wanted to do something adventurous. I had a publication about the new Peace Corps, and I had every uh, possible thing I could think of, uh, missionaries, you know, mm-hmm. how could I do these things? But instead, I took the conventional route, got married, had my two children. And, but along the way, it didn't, it wasn't so bad. Um, we lived in Virginia for a few months because uh, my ex-husband was in the uh, military. And then we lived in San Francisco uh, for two years. And then we moved to Carmel uh, in Monterey for a number of years. And I did a lot of different things uh, there, but in Carmel and Monterey, I taught junior high school. So I had so many wonderful experiences there. And then uh, when we um, moved back to Austin, by that time, I had kind of been able to organize myself to realize that what I wanted to do was go to graduate school. So mm-hmm. then uh, I, I did. I proceeded to go and Actually, the way that I found folklore uh, was that I lived uh, in a neighborhood uh, where Roger Abrams lived, and um, Roger had a very cute little spiffy uh, Porsche uh, uh, car, little you know, little small mm-hmm. fast Porsche car, and he came along this road. It was a kind of a, a suburb, but but not a. It was a kind of a woodsy suburb in the hills. And so the roads were kind of narrow. And he came along in his little car and hit my dog. And so, <laughs> so he felt rather badly about that. And so that's how I met Roger. And as a consequence, well, the dog, I, don't, I never knew what happened to the dog at any rate. Uh, but Roger and I then became friends. And at that point, I was actually starting to look at... Um, uh, how to go to graduate school. So I had decided to take some undergraduate courses to make up my mind. So he recommended this wonderful course. And he said, you know, Roger could be very persuasive. And he said, you really have to do this course. And I said, yeah, I know you're going to like it. And well, this was Barbara KG. And in wow. fact, of course, it was a wonderful course. And I was sure by the time I finished, that's where I'm headed. And it turned out that the folklore program was just getting started Barbara KG wrote me a recommendation. Roger wrote me a recommendation. I did have trouble uh, getting into the course, and I have to tell this story. Many people have already heard it many times, but I did um, 
when I went to sign up for it, uh, I still had these small children. And so I had them in nursery school for the morning, but not for the afternoon. So I needed a morning course. So I went into the folklore office to sign up. And the director, uh, whose name was Dick Bauman, said, no, I'm sorry, you can't have that. That course is full. And I said, but no, you know, I have these small children. I can't take a nap. And he said, I'm sorry, it's closed. So I said, hmm, well, I'll see what I can do about that. So I went home and I called Roger and I said, Roger, I need that morning class that you told me about. So he said, okay, I'll fix that. So I got my morning class. <laughs> but Dick and I have been friends ever since. <laughs> so we finally made up. So um, at any rate, that was uh, that was my uh, f- first um, course, and then and then the graduate program was just getting organized, and so I got in on the the ground floor of that, and we were um, as I said earlier, numerous ones of us had already been out doing something else for uh, several years, and uh, the professors were very close in age. In fact, I'm six months older than Dick, and so <laughs> so we often had parties together. Uh, we were actually it was very intellectually exciting. Um, and uh, we took uh, courses both in anthropology and English because the program was in the Department of Anthropology and the Department of English. So it was sort of interdisciplinary, you know, as well as focused uh, on folklore. Dr. Paredes was, of course, the senior uh, professor. He was very, very dignified. My very first uh, graduate class, he, he had been told that I... Um, this was a, a Latin American class, and not everybody else in there was in folklore. They were all in other programs, but it was a folklore course. And he had been told that I'd had a folklore, an undergraduate folklore course. So the very first uh, day, he turned to me and he said, all right, um, Mrs. Stolci, uh, I would like to hear from you about this reading. Can you uh, tell us about the reading for today? <laughs> so I was not prepared at all for this kind of formality and so on. You know, it was all the graduate was all new to me. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, uh, it, it was uh, all of our professors were excellent. Barbara K.G. only stayed about three years and then she went on back to New York. But um, our professors were always very good, had lots of time for us. We never had um, really... I don't think there were any problems uh, with our professors. Uh, and we were a really, you know, good group. We spent a lot of time with each other, um, listening to each other and writing our papers. And then uh, also uh, the department or the folklore program hired Frank DeCaro and Roseanne Jordan one uh, semester and they came. So because of this period of time, and I think also because so many of us had been out that we uh, were very interested in doing something with women and gender. And so, you know, there was a bibliography created. I think Frank and Roseanne were very much behind that. And then we uh, put together the first publication. Uh, It was first in the Journal of American Folklore, and it was called Women in Folklore, and then it became a book, uh, Women in Folklore. Was edited by Claire Farr, and she was one of the students at the time. And it was uh, most of us were not all of us, but most of us were in that uh, Texas program. So it went on from there, you know, and actually became, you know, the women's section and other lots of other publications and other activities. But that's actually where it started, and it was a kind of a convergence of the larger feminist movement going on. 
with uh, you know this uh, small group of us who had a real interest. I mean, we had personal interest, you know. And yeah. here we are. Uh, many of us were single and uh, you know ready to take charge of our lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Re take charge of your lives, but also compile this resource of okay, not just us, but everyone in our field in academia. Mm-hmm. That's I think. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) We gave uh, most of these papers, I think, were given at a meeting. And that's another thing. Folklore was going through a huge, um, not exactly upheaval, but a lot of intellectual excitement. And there were new, this was a new program, but there were other kind of uh, small programs, you know, around the country, as well as the Penn Department and the Indiana Department in California and so on. So the configuration of folklore was very different at that time from what it actually is now. And so we were encouraged uh, to go to meetings and give papers. And and, uh, having so many graduate students, not just from Texas, but I mean, there were more graduate students at Indiana and Penn and everywhere. Mm -hmm. So most of the professors were actually interested in the students seeing, you know, well, let's see, where is our field going here? What are these students doing, you know? And there, it, there weren't so many, but that, you know, people got uh, attention and it was, it was very rewarding, except that that's where you also aca- occasionally encountered, you know, the misogynist or the sexual harassment uh, and so on, which I think is still true. But I think it's true of all fields, you know, that you just you have to be alert that that's that does still happen. Yeah. Some. Yeah, you've already mentioned how it's kind of changed a bit. But I'm curious. Mm. I want to ask more about how you've seen how it's changed both Mm -hmm. between Texas and specifically since we're talking in Bloomington (laughs) Uh at Indiana, not just Uh the the dissolution of the Dean of Women, but Mm -hmm. even just the daily life. How Mm -hmm. is that maybe better, hopefully? (laughs) For for women, you mean Mm -hmm. at Indiana or at any campus? At anywhere Yes, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. Indiana, if in your own experience, or just in general, based on mm-hmm. who you've talked to. Yes. Well, I think um, you know. Um, I think for for many many years, um, academics, certainly anthropologists and folklorists and sociologists and so on, uh, talked about change. Okay, now we're going to talk about social change, you know, or we're going to talk about how the narrative changed or how the narrative moved, you know, all across Europe in many different versions and so on and so forth. And there wasn't a lot of question about the notion of change, you know, it either occurs or it doesn't, and I'm going to sort of document this. Well, I think, you know, what anybody knows today, if you pay any attention to politics or academe or, you know, almost anything, it's very easy to see that change doesn't just go in one direction. And I think perhaps now more than ever, although who knows, maybe it's always been this way, but certainly we know now that change doesn't just move in one direction. So I would say, uh, for example, there were the years where we had the Dean of Women's Office, and that was... um, that was really a very positive thing. I served on the board uh, one year and women were talking, especially about trying to get 
more childcare, uh, that Indiana University should sponsor more childcare, pre preschool childcare, for example. That was that was one kind of problem. This mentoring program, that was something else they did. They had a reception every fall for all the women who had any involvement. And and that was a just a really, really nice event. I remember one at one event they invited a member of the Board of Trustees who was a woman and she came and spoke. And you know, I mean I'm not generally all excited about somebody who's a board member, but <laughs> The board member of the Board of Trustees, you know, of Indiana University, which is generally pretty conservative, uh, this woman was really very influential and very good for women and so on. So, you know, that did actually make a big impression on me. So that was a big positive. And then one day, poof, it was gone. And um, I really uh, don't know uh, what his motivation was. He has a, the president is married to a really wonderful woman, and she's been very supportive of the Middleway House, you know, the shelter for uh, women. Uh, and she's just, uh, uh, Laura McRobbie is just really a wonderful uh, woman. So, you know, it's, <laughs> I have no idea why he would destroy that, except that an undergraduate student told me that he had planned to also wipe out all of these centers, the African-American center and the Asian center and so on. And the students got together and protested. And so he stopped that. So it may be that he just thought, you know, this was a waste of money and, and he'll just reclaim that money because that is so much what goes on in institutions now. Universities deal in such big budgets they don't get the same money from their state legislatures. Money is just a driving factor now. And, and of course, it's driving a lot of schools, especially small schools, out entirely. Many of them are closing down because they can't sustain the kind of money uh, that is needed. So at any rate, that uh, is a loss. On the other, uh, there's another huge loss at this university. And that was that we used to have a dean of faculties. It wasn't just for women. There was the, the dean of women. But then we had a dean of faculties. And any problem with faculty, it, uh, you know, it could be maybe you've suddenly had a major illness or, you know, something in your life has changed that you, you need some help with. Or maybe you have a problem. Maybe you have a faculty member who's a problem. Uh, you know, anything um, that you could take to the dean of faculties and they would investigate it and do you know whatever uh, was possible advise you etc they also had a committee for uh, tenure so once all the tenure uh, was done all the dossiers were done in the dean of the college the college office then they went over to the dean of faculties and they looked it over and sometimes they would catch things uh, that really should that were wrong and should have been uh, you know changed well that was just abolished one day, poof, gone. And presumably, uh, there's a, a, a presumably it was absorbed by somebody who now has a slightly different title. So you can still go to that person if you know if you have a certain you know if you have problems. Uh, another kind of problem is maybe maybe you want to hire somebody, but you need to hire their spouse too. It, so you know all the problems are not necessarily catastrophic, but you do uh, you go there to get some institutional help on something. So <clears throat> so you can still get some of that help, but it's not like a whole position dedicated. So 
those are some losses uh, for women and faculty in general. Uh, at the same time, you see many more women now, uh, more women hired, more women in administrative positions. So, um, it, you, of course, you have to have to be a chair of a department. You have to be in the department. <laughs> but <laughs> at any rate, um, anthropology has had uh, several uh, women chairs now. Uh, there's a women chair now. Uh, and I know other departments are also. And so, you know, there's definitely advancement in some direction. But you shouldn't think that, oh, good, you know, everything is in order. I you mentioned that there are more women chairs and faculty in anthropology, and that was my experience too from the student perspective, uh -huh. because I, I doubled in anthropology in undergrad as well as performance. Uh, uh -huh. Here? No, I was in North Carolina uh -huh. uh, at uh -huh. East Carolina University. And the class was significantly more women than men. Uh -huh. um, every anthropology class I took, yeah. but especially the cultural anthropology sections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I've never known the kind of the opposite way around because, right. Yeah, this seems accurate, but I did see in the faculty of that department, all of the younger members were usually women, but a lot mm -hmm. of the older members were men. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it's a pity because uh, one of the faculty actually lamented to me that she wanted to tenure this professor who is new, but they don't, they're not opening the tenured positions. Mm -hmm. So as the tenured faculty retire, they're mm -hmm. just hiring more adjunct or mm -hmm. assistant, but right. not the full time mm -hmm. moving into the tenure positions. And so I am curious, a little apprehensive about uh, what everyone I saw my 35 person anthropology seminar, what they're going to do. Granted, not all of them went to graduate school, but a good half intended to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yes, the job market is, this is a real, real challenge. When you talk about change, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, because of these changes in the economy, which are, it's basically neoliberalism. I mean, you know, these things were not like uh, acts of God or acts of nature. You know, they were created mm -hmm. by the human beings who created neoliberalism or whatever other labels you want to put on it. But this whole idea, you know, of accumulating so much money at the top. But that also means that institutions also, like corporations, had to have a lot of money at the top. Yeah. And it it's... Uh, you know, it seems ridiculous when you, obviously we have billions and billions of dollars, you know, you hear about Jeff Bezos and how much money he makes and Bill Gates and Jeff Zuckerberg and so on. And yet we have institutions that can't make their way and they're not hiring new tenure track professors and so on. So, I mean, this country is really in a terrible mess, uh, you know, economically. So, the question is, you know, then what's going to happen? Because people getting PhDs can't really expect to get a job in academia, uh, mm -hmm. given, you know, right now. I mean, how long it may take. Hope I hope that it will come back. We don't know if it will. I, I haven't read anything that even tries to project. But we can hope, at least that some will. I suspect some of the small colleges will not. It, it would 
probably be hopeless maybe for some of the smaller ones to come back. But one thing that I have seen grow is community colleges. Instead of just being sort of the cast off, you know, uh, aside for people who can't make it in the bigger university, these colleges, at least in some places, like in California, for example, they have really grown. So I do, I have a former student, she was actually in anthropology, and she is teaching out there, and she really loves it, but she does teach five courses a semester. Now, they are courses of 40 students. They're not 200, but, you know, it's just incredible work, incredible exploitation. But at least she gets to teach the same two courses, and she really does love it. And it is a very big college. So that's one, you know, place um, where change is happening that maybe might be helpful if people are willing to go that route. But I think the idea of community colleges is also changing and, you know, so on. So that's one, but there are others. Did you want to say something? I was just going to share my own community college experience. Uh I had intended to, but I think the part for getting community colleges to maybe continue in the future and grow in the future is also getting the universities to work with the community colleges. Yes. yes. Because for example, as a music performance major, it doesn't matter how long and how many credits you bought brought from a community college. You still have to have eight semesters of private lessons at the university. So you're still going to be there for four years. Wow. Um, And so between that and the transferring credits, Mm -hmm. there's still that politics. Mm -hmm. politics. Right. Yeah. I think at IU, they have allowed a lot of people at Ivy Tech to, uh, and Ivy Tech doesn't call itself a community college, but I think that's what it was. But it has really grown, I think. And, but the effect that it's had on IU is that what used to be like American history or introduction to math or introduction to English or some freshman courses are being done at Ivy Tech, Mm -hmm. which means that. Sometimes graduate students don't have a course to teach um, here here on campus. So there are ups and downs to these things. But I wanted to say that, I mean, given the pandemic and given uh, the economy even before the pandemic, that I think, I, I hope that people don't stop getting graduate degrees, but they do need to be aware, you know, that there's not likely to be a job waiting for it very many of them out there. There will be some, but not maybe very many. So I've thought about, you know, other things besides community college. There are just other colleges, for one thing, that, you know, people don't always realize. Certainly in the Midwest, there are so many colleges. How many of them will survive uh, the pandemic? I don't know. But I have also thought about the fact, for example, uh, one thing that some people have been doing for quite a while is to go and get an MA, even if you do a PhD in folklore ethnomusicology, go get an MA in library science so that you have, you know, a way of combining what you do, not only at a university, but, you know, maybe you might work for a corporation or something. If you found one, you could stand uh, to, <laughs> to work for so, but there are people who do, you know, archiving and programming for uh, big corporations or even teaching, you know, in a business school. There are sometimes, I know there have been students, uh, folklore, ethno students who have taught in the business school here. And um, 
Then the other thing, which is not academic at all, but I think could be very interesting for some people, is to get involved in some of these new movements. We heard on television the other night about a movement called Run for Something. And this is a group of young people, very young, who organized in Virginia and were very successful. Uh, it's a, like grassroots organization, and they were very successful in Virginia. They have a Democratic governor and so on. And um, the, so they're planning to expand now if they uh, can, can do so. Mm-hmm. And there are other groups like Indivisible uh, also, you know, that is largely uh, young, young people. Uh, and, you know, people who, if you are interested in, you know, improving society, trying to get people, you know, um, into politics who will be responsible politicians and work, mm-hmm. work for society, not for some crazies. So um, that's that's another thought is uh, that whole world of kind of new organizations where young people are and they want, you know, you want to have good people in there with good training uh, because oftentimes uh, there are businesses sometimes that want to hire people also from the humanities because they know that you can read and write and think and <laughs> accomplish a task, you know. <laughs> So that, you know, I would really encourage uh, people to look around in a lot of different directions, not necessarily, you know, keeping in mind that this may be a period of kind of stepping back and getting some new kind of experience, but applying what you know. Mm-hmm. And and if you're a performer, of course, uh, there may be options in performance that, um that you hadn't thought about. Um, I don't know right now. I can't tell you what. But yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to be a graduate student currently. Uh-huh. I'm not Good. a performer at the moment. Uh-huh. Yes, but that's linked but, to teaching too. Yeah, I I think uh, performing maybe not full time, but I think you know some kinds of performance I, because I think people will be very hungry uh, for performance. Mm-hmm. You know, once we're allowed to get out and socialize a bit more. I'm hoping so. I like festivals. I mean, I think festivals will, festivals will be very important. Yeah, I'm I'm very in awe of how many festivals have been able to switch to online content, and uh-huh. oh, I want to do an entire study based on some of them have made entire virtual environments. Uh huh. And it's amazing, but mm-hmm. um, to get kind of back on topic because I also know we're running a little close to what uh-huh. I said our time would be. I was going to ask about what role you see maybe women playing in the politics of the academy in the mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. And even like these organizations with the young people, are we going to be the mentors? Even though I think there's far more students than mentors at the moment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is difficult. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Women in the politics of academe or the politics and maybe not even the politics, maybe just in shaping what universities uh-huh. are going to look yeah. universities and classes and teaching is going to look like uh-huh. post pandemic, maybe if we can ever alter alter course from the business model of universities mm-hmm. that we're currently seeing mm-hmm. Well, that is going to take a really long time, I fear, although we we really, I don't think anybody 
has projected very much about you know what life is going to be like after after the pandemic. Yeah. So it is possible, perhaps, that things will change. But that model is so embedded um, that I can't imagine that it would change easily. Not at a place as big as IU, mm-hmm. where not only has big money become you know the model, but uh, this president has been so successful in getting big donors who then, you know, put their money into buildings or naming a building or whatever instead of, you know, into faculty and so on. So that's a kind of a, a double uh, layer on it. I mean, he's the president has done a lot of good things. I don't mean that he hasn't, but I just mean that the money has generally gone toward um, permanent uh, buildings and so on. So I think... Uh, it's going to be a long time before a big university like this or any of the big universities, uh, you know, will make a change. On the other hand, as an alum of the University of Texas, I get mailings from them all the time. And they have made some extraordinary uh, changes. I mean, for one thing with diversity, I mean, they have deans uh, of all their schools and colleges and so on who, who reflect diversity and have just, you know, they have, I've, picked up a, one of their mailings uh, not long ago. And here is a project going on in Ghana uh, where I work. And these are students uh, who have a project they're doing in Ghana. So I think that university has, it has really made big strides uh, in spite of being in Texas, which is, as you know, one of the most conservative places possible <laughs> with a yeah. crazy government. And so so I wouldn't say that things won't change, but I'd say, you know, I don't see it happening. It just depends on the place, that there really are places that are more open to change and, and not. But I do think that um, women, and I, I hope that, you know, women and women of color and white women and women of all kinds, you know, are going to be able uh, to work together uh, to advance, you know, women in general and women minorities, et cetera. That's going to be really um really crucial for women as a whole but i also think when you have a large body uh, a large body of people working towards something it's it's more lasting it's more successful and it's more lasting the more diversity you have uh, i mean you can't have, you can have too much i suppose but you you if you have some diversity then you know then you don't get people pointing the finger and saying well you're all this or all that and and the mm-hmm. other so I do think that uh, women already have made great uh, strides, really, in administration, for example. But again, you know, you need that. You need women in positions of power and authority. But at the same time, that doesn't always translate to meaning anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to mean anything for women uh, down below. Just because you have somebody of a certain gender there, you know, it doesn't necessarily have any implications. So that's why I think women really have to work together, you know, whether they are organized in a group or not. Women have to work together. That's the only way. Uh, I even read an article recently because I'm retired. And I can read things I didn't couldn't read before. <laughs> I read an article in Scientific American on how human beings had succeeded. And they said it's two things. Yes, they had weapons, and so they could defeat the Neanderthals. But secondly, they learned to cooperate, mm-hmm. period. Two things. So, you know, cooperation is absolutely essential to if you want to have progress for any more than one person. Sometimes one person can shove everybody else aside, step on them, you know, kill them if possible and move ahead. But you get much more 
advancement for uh, everybody if everybody can work together. So, you know, that's essentially my my argument for how, you know, if, but again, I guess one thing I haven't said is to think about your institution or the institutions you're looking at, you know, if you're looking toward the future, think about it as doing ethnography. Try to understand your institution. Mm-hmm. How, what, what makes this one go? And at Indiana, sometimes it's hard to know because a lot of things get done sort of privately, unofficially, et cetera, a lot. So, you know, you, you, if you want to know how to make a change, sometimes you have to do a lot of digging, a lot of ethnography. Yeah, that, and br- thank you for bringing back the core of folklore and ethnomythology <laughs> and anthropology is that, that ethnography. Yes. I think that's a good note to end on. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Solchi. Well, thank you for having me. I think this is a great project that you're doing. It's it's one way of doing mentoring uh, yeah. in a way. And by the way, as a footnote, it just occurred to me that one other kind of mentoring uh, would be to take advantage of retired professors who are sitting at home writing and enjoying themselves, but you know <laughs> may have <laughs> some helpful ideas. <laughs> so that's another thing too. And you can bring in ideas from all those things, the fields that you're able to read now that you have the extra time, like Science of American. I have published a number of things which I could not have published before if I didn't have the time, you know, to do the research. So, yes, I'm going right ahead with this project and it's very satisfying. I'm glad. Well, thank you so much. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.